I have a question to start off this morning. Can you describe a, a time of being, doing, or speaking righteousness that cost you something? That cost you something. A number of you will know of a fellow named Tomas Bencomo. He's come up here. He's spoken at our church in the past. He is a Mexican pastor who lives in Juarez, Mexico, which is right on the border of the U.S. and Mexico. And for more than 20, about 20 years or more now, he's been uh, going into different parts of um, Mexico to minister to different indigenous groups there. And one of the groups that I've had the privilege of partnering with and, and working with is the Tarumara people. They're famous for their running ability. Um, and he has a story that he shared with me a few years ago that stuck with me. And he, he talked about how there was this one town that he... Uh, went to and began preaching the gospel to. And culturally, it's a little bit different than what it is here. So uh, people would listen. They're not going to dismiss you when that kind of stuff happens. And they're very hospitable. And so in this town, as he was preaching and ministering there, many people actually responded to the good news of Jesus. And their lives were changing. And one of the clearest ways that this showed up in this small town was through what happened to people's jobs and the work that they were doing. See, in Mexico, there's a, a number of cartels, and cartels have a very strong influence on a lot of the um, informal uh, economy that goes on there. And one of the things that many cartels will do is they'll pay poor farmers to grow and harvest poppy seeds or marijuana um, in often like more like rural or remote areas where there's far less of a um, police presence um, deep into ca uh, mountainous areas or whatever. And so um, it's often the best money that these families can get. And so they'll do it. And in this town, as many people were starting to come to Jesus, they started giving up these jobs of growing and cultivating and farming these different drugs. They knew um, what following Jesus meant. They wanted to be rightly related to him. They wanted to be rightly related to one another and to the world, and they, so they couldn't carry on. They knew what that work had, what kind of impact it had on their nation, on their communities, on their families, and they stopped. But not everyone was happy about this, as you can imagine. And this changed um, the cartel's bottom line as people started to stop growing these drugs. And so one day, a fella from the town came up to this man, Tomas Bencomo, and asked him if he could just talk with him. And Tomas said he actually thought he just wanted to pray. So he, he followed him and walked along with him and started taking a little bit of time to get to wherever this guy w lived. And eventually, the, this fella led Tomas to just outside of uh, town, kind of like around a bend that kind of obscured uh, what you could see on the other side there. And when he turned the corner, he discovered that, that he was surrounded by several members of what turned out to be this cartel that ran that area and this town. And the leader of the group explained to Tomas that they, didn't, they knew what he was doing, they didn't like what he was doing, and they said, please stop. No, that's not what they said. They didn't just ask him politely and kindly to stop. They told him that they were going to kill him. 
because of what he was doing, because he was undermining their business. For Tomás de Mencomo, the cost of doing and speaking righteousness was his safety, and it nearly cost him his life. And the, we'll save the details of what happened for a little bit later, but there's always a cost to being righteous, to speaking righteousness, to doing righteousness. If you pursue righteousness, that is pursuing being rightly related to God, to others, the earth, pursue peacemaking, if you pursue following Jesus Christ, some of the results of that will include insults, threats, being hurt, and sometimes even being killed. If you've been following along with us in these Beatitudes, you will have noticed something about them. The Beatitudes mark the beginning of Jesus' vision for the good life, which is the Sermon on the Mount. They describe being in a state of human flourishing, and yet as you read them, you can't help but notice that what Jesus is saying is deeply subversive. It undermines the regular ways of doing, being, and thinking in our world. You're flourishing if you're poor in spirit. You're flourishing and in sync with the kingdom of God when you're mourning. There's no clearer picture of the subversive nature of the Beatitudes than in the final Beatitude, the one we're looking at today. No Beatitude is more subversive than this last one. You are flourishing when you are persecuted because of righteousness. If the Beatitudes are Jesus' vision for the good life, how can persecution be included? All the Beatitudes are subversive in one way or another, but this one, more so than any other, is. And he, in it, he expands it and begins to explain himself. And it is here in this last Beatitude that Jesus begins to tie all of them together and tie all of them to himself. This is the one where one scholar puts, is where Jesus begins to walk onto the stage. You are flourishing when people insult you, despise you, hurt you because of me. This is where Jesus is saying, the Beatitudes are what it looks like when you come into contact with me and follow me. Here's what happens when you live my way. So let's read the Beatitudes together. Matthew 5, verses 1 through 11, read, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for theirs is, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for sending him to us. We thank you for these words that he spoke. We thank you for the kingdom that has come in him, and we ask that he would speak them to us once again through the Spirit. Help us to hear them anew, and we ask that we would, you would continue to work to make us more like Jesus. 
making these beatitudes more and more true of us. We pray this in Jesus' strong and mighty name. Amen. This morning, I want to offer just some preliminary comments as we look at this um, passage. And, and in this message, I've uh, drawn from a few different sources. One would be Daryl Johnson. Another is Aaron White, who was a speaker last week. He's actually written a book on the Beatitudes, and it's a, a fantastic book. And uh, another source is this guy named John Tyson. Now, these uh, comments that I just wanted to highlight, the first is that the Beatitudes aren't descriptions of eight different people. They are a description of the same person. Last week, Aaron mentioned that um, the early church, one of the interpretive ways that they looked at it was uh, seeing almost like a ladder, that each virtue builds upon the other, and meaning that poverty of spirit is the starting point. It's from that place that you do begin to mourn, and it leads to meekness, and hungering and thirsting to be rightly related. It leads to giving mercy because you've received it. It leads to purity of heart, to peacemaking because you've experienced the peace, the justice, the wholeness that Jesus brings. The Beatitudes are describing the work that happens in the same person, not different people. Second, this is the only Beatitude that Jesus expands. Notice that he, there's actually these two verses we have. 10 and 11. Jesus explains it. This is the only one that Jesus feels like he needs to expand. There's none of the other ones does he do this. He doesn't think that he needs to expand and talk more about poverty of spirit or mourning or purity of heart. This is the one he camps on. This is the only personal beatitude. This is where Jesus moves from blessed are those to blessed are you. He turns and faces you. For this is the beatitude where Jesus walks onto the stage. Blessed are you when people persecute you because of righteousness. And then he expands it and says, Blessed are you when people insult you and value and say all kinds of evil because of me. This is when he ties all of these beatitudes to himself. We've sensed that. That's been implied. But this is when Jesus gets explicit. He's not just highlighting these ethical standards. He embodies them. They are all connected to him. You won't be rightly related without Jesus. You cannot be pure in heart apart from Jesus. You, there is no peacemaking apart from him. And that becomes explicit in this beatitude. And likewise, being persecuted for righteousness and because of Jesus are connected. You cannot separate these two things. Righteousness is connected to the righteous one. Righteousness refers to being rightly related to God, others, ourselves, and the earth. And being rightly related is inseparable from the one who restores all people to right relations. So, there's a question. If Jesus is restoring our relationships, his life and teaching, they lead to uh, restoration for others, why should we be expecting persecution? That sounds like a pretty good thing to me. Well, the answer actually comes in that word restored. The only things, only things that are worn out, broken, out of service, no longer functioning, need to be restored. And humanity has been living out of brokenness. No longer functioning the way we were meant to. 
the way we were intended to. We function, but not in ways that are healthy and lead to flourishing. They work some ways, but not completely and not for all people. Our own way, apart from the Creator, leads to disintegration of life, to division, to strife. And Jesus comes to us and announces the need for us to turn around and to embrace the kingdom of heaven, which he says has come in him. Jesus threatens and undermines the dominant way of thinking, doing, and being. That's what it means to be subversive. And those who join in Jesus are joining a subversive movement. And that's what the Beatitudes have been highlighting. Poverty of spirit, mourning, meekness, instead of grasping for power, hungering to be rightly related, giving mercy instead of pursuing revenge, purity of heart, peacemaking instead of destruction. They all subvert the established ways of doing, being, thinking, and speaking in our time. That gut reaction we have when someone wrongs us. And that's why they feel so upside down to us, so otherworldly, because they are. They are the ways of the King of Heaven. They are the way of Jesus. And two main responses to this is to receive it and welcome it, or to reject it. And when people reject and resist this movement, this is one of the ways, one of the ways we see that is through persecution. They begin to persecute the bringers of this change, first the leader and then his followers. Now, I just want to explain this word persecute a little bit because it, if we don't make sense of it, we're going to just start to make our own definition up in our mind. And so it's important to just make sense of it. This word uh, persecute in the Greek is dioko, uh, and it has more than one meaning. It can mean and refer to, refer to uh, forcing someone to leave, to drive them away, to make them run or flee. But it can also mean to harass, trouble, and mistreat a person or a group on account of something. On account of something. Now, Jesus makes clear in verse 11 that it is on account of him. On account of him. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Now, some translations yours might, in your Bible might say revile, which means to heap undeserved disapproval, insults, and blame in those who will speak falsely about you, to falsely accuse and spread malicious lies about you, See, one can be persecuted with words or actions for this reason, for a reason. And Jesus says, on account of me. He makes it about himself. He doesn't make it about the way in which we conduct ourselves or the way that... Um, he doesn't make it about us being arrogant and thinking that we're right or forcing our way. That's not what he's saying. He's actually, it's about me. And in our context, I want to suggest then that a working definition for persecution refers to the harm, physical, emotional, verbal, that people inflict on you because you have made Jesus and his way of relating to others the greatest priority. So that, that should clarify something. 
Because it's not because you are right and others are wrong or because you know the truth and others don't. That's not what this is about. It's about him and his way of relating to others, which you have said, I'm going to relate to others the way he does. So let me flesh that out in three ways. And all of these relate to Jesus and righteousness. Jesus and his people, when they follow him, will face persecution for being righteous, doing righteousness, and speaking righteousness. And I have to just acknowledge here, there's this tension that I feel even in preaching this passage because in my view, and it might just be me, I think that sometimes we Christians have been too quick to adopt this idea that we are being persecuted. And that makes me very uncomfortable. Because what we see uh, in the scripture is, is not someone who is being persecuted because they think they're right and they're arrogant about it and they force other people to agree with them. That's not the picture that we see. And we'll, we'll see that in some of the passages. But at the same time, scripture speaks about persecution. And so we have to make sense of it, but we have to see it in light of who Jesus is and the way that he relates to others. He is our picture for making sense of it. And I will also say that there's probably like, uh, rather than thinking of something on persecution, like black or white, this isn't or this isn't, there's probably a bit more of a spectrum. And so in the West, here in Canada, we're not going to experience the same levels of hostilities, of insults, of harm that other people in other parts of the world will, where you're not allowed to evangelize in certain parts of the world at all. You cannot make your faith known. You can't invite people to church. We don't have that. And so there's this tension that I think we need to acknowledge in recognizing that we may face hostility, mistreatment, but as it stands at this moment in our uh, country, we don't face danger for following Jesus, for identifying with them, for identifying with them. And so we just need to, I think we need to be humble and wise about the way in which we use this word. So with that all said, let me just go through these three reasons Jesus and his people face persecution. The first is being righteous. Now this doesn't, again, refer to people who by their presence give off a smug or superior attitude about their views, their ways, or their lifestyle. That's not what being righteous is about. As we've looked at over the past few weeks, it's about being rightly related to God, to others, to yourself, and to our world. And so Jesus is righteous, and he is never smug or acting like he is superior. He says that he is gentle and lowly. Jesus is God with skin on. Think about that. Though he is God, he steps off of his throne and comes before us. And he doesn't come to be served, he says, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the one that, his, that we Christians say we're following, that he is our example. And Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and light. There's no darkness in Jesus, but Jesus' presence alone exposes hidden ideas attitudes, actions. And when that happens, you and I either respond to the light by trying to hide from it or turning towards it and letting it heal us. Daryl Johnson will say, if the world 
human society organizing itself without God, hated goodness himself, what will the world do to those who seek and reflect his goodness? When he imparts his righteousness to us, that's Jesus to us, we begin to change. We're not made perfect, but we do begin to change. We are slowly but surely, uh, we slowly but surely become nonconformists. As Flannery O'Connor is reputed to have said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you odd. Odd. Anyone just relate to that? Where you just feel like you're different? You don't really, something changes when you identify with Jesus and he begins to do a work in you. And when I was 19, I had a powerful encounter with Jesus, and it changed me. And I began, began to experience this. And I'll just acknowledge, I didn't expect to feel kind of odd. I hadn't really fully thought through it. But one of the things that happened is his presence began to expose my hidden actions and my heart. And I experienced healing, his healing, as I turned to him. And I opened up my unrighteousness to him. I started to change, and I started to be a nonconformist. And one of the ways that this happened in my life is that I stopped smoking weed. I wasn't walking with Jesus. I uh, had walked away. I wasn't going to church. Um, I felt uncomfortable with identifying with Jesus. But after this point, I, I did identify. I did want to follow him. And I knew that one of the things that had to change in my life was that I wanted to stop smoking. I wanted to stop uh, getting high, getting drunk. I, w I didn't want to have that be my life. I knew that wasn't the best life that Jesus wanted for me, and I found something more and greater in him. But I didn't really have very many Christian friends, and I still loved my friends that weren't Christian, and they weren't interested in my life, and that was okay with me. They didn't have to uh, see the way things I saw, but I wanted to still be present with them. And so one of the things I said is I just told them where I was at, my own convictions, and I didn't try to say, you can't do this or anything like that. And they were actually super understanding. They, they were like, yeah, no worries, man. And so I would hang out with them, and they would do that, but I wouldn't. And that worked for a period of time. But you know, everyone's different. And so while most of my friends seemed to be okay with it, you know, there was a couple who would say, hey, come on, man, don't you want to? Or others who began to feel uncomfortable with it. And that's what I started to experience. I loved my friends, but I didn't want to participate in the same things they were doing. And there was this tension. I felt odd. And one day it finally became explicit that there was something off that I didn't really fit in. I started feeling kind of uncomfortable um, and maybe like, like maybe not everyone was okay with me being different. But this one day as I was spending time with them, one of my friends, just in the way that they were speaking or not speaking in the nonverbal cues, I started to sense something was off. And he kind of just turned to me. And I might have just been sen uh, sensitive, but he turned to me and said, hey man, you know, you don't have to be here if you're not going to be smoking with us anymore. And it wasn't said in a tone of like an accommodation. It was communicated in a way where it's like, it was more than just you don't have to be here. And all of a sudden I started to realize that that feeling that I was having was actually real. That I wasn't 
I didn't fit in, that I was different, that I was odd, and I was making my friend feel uncomfortable. Despite the fact I wasn't trying to preach to them or anything. For that one friend, he felt uncomfortable. And I'm sad to say it, but I accepted what he said, and I said, okay, man. And, and I actually just, like, left. And I wish I hadn't. I wish I had actually fought for that friendship. I don't know what would have been the difference. I don't know if it actually would have turned out for the better. But I wish that I had. See, one of the things that will happen when we come to Jesus and he begins to change us is we don't conform any way anymore to the ways in which others live. And it will make some people feel uncomfortable. They won't like it. And I'm not trying to say that I was perfect. I wasn't. I'm still not. And like I said, I still wish that I had fought harder for that friendship. But the Bible talks about his people being set apart. And the word that you often use is consecration, meaning like these vessels for special use. And some of you know what I'm talking about. You have maybe china at home or, or, or plates that you don't really use for your family. You use them for your special guests. Those things are set apart. They are set apart for a specific purpose. And the people of God, they are not perfect, but they are holy in the sense that they are set apart. They are different because Jesus is different. And he is making us like himself. He is not of this world. And his goodness, justice, and righteousness can be experienced as a threat. And so you and I will experience that on different levels where we become not only awed, but maybe unwelcome. And Jesus himself will say in John 15, if, God, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. Do you notice here how Jesus highlights that there will be people who will still actually respond in a positive sense. Sometimes we read these persecution passages and just think, if you do this, this will always happen, and that's not always the case. Throughout the book of Acts, you see people respond positively to the gospel and some who reject it and reject it violently. Others are just indifferent. It's not always going to be this one way, but we should expect that this type of response can and will happen. The people of God are subversive only in, and because the one who we follow is subversive. And that will sometimes lead to persecution. Second reason that Jesus is persecuted is for doing righteousness. Doing righteousness. When you read the Gospels, we have to understand that Jesus always, just through being who he is, disrupted the status quo. He disrupted the status quo. Jesus announced the arrival of the kingdom of heaven, which meant that, that there would be a clash of kingdoms. The kingdom of heaven is arriving, meaning it wasn't in that place at that time. And this clash between his kingdom that he's ushering in and the kingdom that was already in place threatened some. This is the kingdom of darkness, scripture will talk about. And Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness. In his kingdom, people are rightly related to him, to others, to themselves, and to the earth. And he has come to establish that as the norm on earth. 
Jesus didn't remain in the comfortable place. He didn't stay in heaven. He actually stepped off of his throne and took on the form of a man, and not just a man, but a, a servant, and didn't just come and lived and had people serve him. He actually came and gave up his life and died on a cross. He did that. He moved away from his comfort, from just being in a place of comfort. He moved from a place of maybe caution or maybe even concern. John Tyson will note that the majority of Jesus' ministry took place on what he calls the redemptive edge. Yeah, there you go, the redemptive edge. And this is where light confronts darkness. That's where you're often misunderstood because you haven't sided with everyone else. The majority, none, none of Jesus' ministry really ever happens in comfort. That's not where it's happening. It's not really happening from a place of caution either. The grand majority of it is happening between that gap between where criticism and darkness are. And so if that is where Jesus is going to be, then of course, as his people, you and I are called to be there too. Jesus practiced righteousness by eating with sinners, healing people on the Sabbath, allowing his disciples to pick food on the Sabbath, showing mercy to a woman caught in adultery, keeping company with sketchy characters. Jesus was disrupting the status quo, and it attracted a lot of criticism from those at the time who had authority. He was undermining the ways in which they thought you were to be rightly related to God. But he also confronted the kingdom of darkness, preaching to the Samaritan woman, calling her to worship in spirit and truth, preaching um, and setting people free, casting demons out of people that were possessed like the man by the Sea of the Galilee. He commissioned his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. And in the book of Acts, we see how his first followers over the span of about 30 years take what Jesus says to do seriously. They take his example and his words to heart, and they begin to live on that same redemptive edge, and they begin to experience very similar challenges to what Jesus experienced. And this is where you and I are called as his people, those who identify with him, to be, to live on that redemptive edge, in that place where people will criticize us because of who we ch choose to spend time with, the company that we keep the money that we spend and where we direct it to, how we live our lives. One of the ways to think about the group of people that Jesus was often spending time with that drew criticism is to think of the word unclean. Now, you and I don't live by the same uh, ritual purity laws that uh, the Jews did at the time, but we still can understand that idea of being unclean. Aaron talked about that last week. Who are those that we would consider unclean? Remember he talked about how for those that he uh, teaches and disciples, the unclean are actually the police. And yet those were the ones that Jesus went, uh, uh, that for them, they need to actually welcome in and love. For you and I, it might be different in our circumstance. Who are the people who are unclean? Aaron, he actually tells his story in his book. He works with many people uh, who uh, struggle with addiction and are in recovery. And he tells this story about a friend who was unclean to many in society. And friendship with him is costly. 
Because of the nature of this guy's crimes, he's restricted from, uh, in his contact with most people, especially kids. And Aaron says he is one of the most isolated and despised people. His parole officer said to Aaron one time, do you really think this guy is worth your time? Aaron says working with him is costly because most other people, even in jail and recovery programs, hate and suspect him, which extends to me when I am seen visiting with him. Pastoring him risks being painted with the same brush, being isolated and distrusted by everyone, from ex-cons to social workers to police officers. Why associate with someone like him? Now, apply that to your life. Some of you might be like, well, I don't have a relationship like that. But why associate, befriend, or spend time with, pray, love for people whose lives, beliefs, past are so offensive that people judge you for keeping company with them? It might be in your head something like they protested, they stayed quiet, they lean left, they lean right, they're selfish, they're needy, they're, they're deceitful, they're way too guarded, they're way too open about their feelings, they've got a shady past, they're so pretentious, they're so proud, they actually never let anybody in. We have all these different reasons and different ways of make, saying that certain people are unclean and we won't associate with them. Why associate with any of these people? The best reason is because that's exactly what Jesus has decided to do with you. That is the best reason. Jesus has decided to do that with you. He chose to be there, and he was reviled. People made up rumors about him. People hated him. People intentionally misunderstood him and misrepresented him to others. But he chose to be associated with us, not just be associated with us, but to be with us, not just be with us, but to lay down his life for us. He became unclean for us. This is why Aaron White says that being persecuted for righteousness means bearing the reproach that he, Jesus, bore outside the camp with the unclean, the undesirables, the orphans, the widows, the foreigners, sinners, and substance users. And this is where the people of Jesus are called to be. Outside of the camp, that redemptive edge, they're the same place. That's the same place you and I are called to be. And this is deeply uncomfortable. And we're not even talking about the persecution part. <laughs> it's uncomfortable, but this is the call that Jesus has on his people. Leslie Newbegin will say this. He was a, a British missionary and he said, I think the deepest motive for mission is simply, not imply, simply the desire to be with Jesus where he is on the frontier between the reign of God and the usurped dominion of the devil. That's the redemptive edge. It's to be in that place. And if Jesus is there, we need to be there too. See, following him disarms the powers of the unseen and seen forces of our world. Following Jesus will disrupt the selfishness in our hearts. Following Jesus undermines the idea that injustice, injustice and evil will win out in the end. Following him weakens the claims that truth belongs to the powerful and those who write history. Following Jesus brings the downfall of the old order of things. It upends cartels. It undermines governments ruled through violence. It exposes systems of abuse. And in each one of these, 
there will be misunderstanding, there will be criticism, and worse. When you follow him to these places, when you begin to disrupt things, we need to expect that there will be insults, that people will not always understand it, that people will try to hurt you. Third reason Jesus is persecuted is for speaking righteousness. For speaking righteousness. Jesus walks up to people and says, repent, turn around. Your ways haven't been working. You need to come and follow me. Attach yourself to me. He'll say it to the wealthy, and he'll say it to the crooked tax collectors. He'll say it to the poor fishermen. He'll call anyone. He believes that people should follow him, that their lives have to have um, him as the leader, that their agendas actually need to be set by him. And Jesus will make several, what can come across as outlandish and extreme statements about who he is to others. One of the clear examples you see of this is in the Gospel of John, where Jesus makes seven I am statements. I am the bread of life. In other words, you need me to sustain you the way bread does. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. You need me to truly see things as they are. I am the door of the sheep. I am the one who lets you in. I protect my sheep from predators. I am the resurrection and the life. Death is not the final word for those who are in Christ. He is. And he brings new life. I am the good shepherd. He is the one who cares for, guides his sheep, and he is the one who will ultimately lay down his life for his sheep to redeem them. I am the true vine. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from him, you can do nothing. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not a way, not a truth, not a life, but the way, the truth, the life is found in me and me alone. These claims would have been easier to accept if they weren't so exclusive. The way, the truth, and the found isn't found in a set of ideals or rules, but in a person, Jesus himself. And to make matters more complicated, Jesus in the Gospel of John will also say, before Abraham was, I am, declaring that he actually identified himself with God. God had revealed his name to Moses saying, I am who I am. And Jesus comes out and says, I am is standing right before you. And their reaction at that time, the authorities picked up stones and tried to kill him, tried to stone him to death. See, Jesus' presence, his actions, his words will subvert, upend, undermine our presumptions about what we know about God, ourselves, and this life. And for this reason, Daryl Johnson will ask, if some people cannot handle Jesus speaking about himself so outrageously, what are they to do with those who repeat his outrageous claims? What will they do to those who seek out to live, to live out the implications of these claims? Well, Acts, the book of Acts shows us what happens when people take it seriously. And one great story of this you can see in Acts chapters 3 and 4. In that story, you see that it starts off with Peter and John. They're walking to the temple. And right at the, at the temple uh, gates, there's this 
man that's lying there who's unable to walk. And he's begging for money. And Peter and John notice him. And Peter says, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name of the Lord Jesus. And he says, get up and walk. And the man gets up the first time in his life and begins to walk and he dances and he rejoices and it draws a huge crowd as people are blown away by what's happening they recognize the guy they've seen there and as that happens the crowd comes peter begins to explain hey this is about jesus jesus is the one who did this i did it in his name and such a crowd draws that eventually the religious authorities of the temple come and they kind of um interrogate peter and john and they finally just ask Peter and John, by what power did you do this? They ask him in uh, chapter 4, verse 7. Now, Peter could have just said the name of Jesus. And I think if I were Peter, I probably just would have done that. I was like, yeah, through Jesus, Jesus. But instead, he's far bolder. Listen to what he says. This is uh, starting in verse 8. We have it. Yeah, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Ruler and elder, rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. They go on to, he goes on to say, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. No one else, no other name. And if you're thinking Peter maybe just got a little bit too zealous because that's his personality, Luke makes clear Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. Filled with the Spirit, said to them. God in his wisdom led Peter in those words. And in an age where Everyone does their own thing. In an age marked by radical individualism where you speak your truth, Jesus' words about himself and what the apostles proclaimed inspired by the Spirit about him are subversive. They undermine the way you and I think about this world, the way that we're supposed to relate with one another. They, do they undermine and threaten the dominant understanding of life. They come across as intolerant and they can get us into trouble. See, the exclusivity of Jesus has always been this tension point, whether it's today or the first century A.D. And because the early church actually believed that Jesus was God, that there was one God, not many, in a time that was polytheistic, their contemporaries actually criticized them and viewed them as atheists because it was so abnormal to just believe in one God. And they didn't use that word of atheist in a descriptive sense. It was meant to be a pejorative, mocking word that they would use to describe the Christians. And you and I might experience incredulous looks when we make similar claims about who Jesus is and the life that he calls us to, that we believe his way actually leads to flourishing, that we believe that life works best when we submit ourselves, when we depend on him, when we choose to forgive those who wrong us, when we choose to pray for those who insult us and hurt us and harm us. 
But to reject Jesus and his claims is to reject righteousness. It's, a, it's to walk away from being rightly related to him. And it doesn't mean you and I seek to be arrogant, to be rude, to shove it in people's faces. I mean, the whole Beatitudes remind us his people are poor in spirit. His people are meek. They're pure in heart. They're peacemakers. So they're not trying to actually bring division. It means that in an age full of distrust, we will trust in Jesus and his claims, even when it puts us at a disadvantage with others. I want to make clear that we don't seek out persecution as his people. You seek out Jesus, and you follow him to the redemptive edge, to those who are outside of the camp, who set up camp and set up camp among them. You don't aim to be persecuted. You speak truth, sure, and seek to be gracious. You're not trying to win an argument. You don't try to offend and repulse people by the way that you live. You seek to practice the way of Jesus, inviting him to transform you into a person who looks like and loves like him. And you take whatever comes after that in stride. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, he says. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Why are you blessed? Because you're flourishing when people tell you you're not welcome here because of me. You're winning, he's saying. You're in sync with my kingdom when, you, when people mistreat you and hurt you because you're seeking to be rightly related to me. You're on the right track. Good on you, you lucky bum. Why are you so lucky? Because there's this promise. There's this promise when you look at the Beatitudes. It says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why should you rejoice? Why should you be glad? You have this great reward, which is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven belongs to you. This last one is the same as the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in between, you'll notice they're different. They will be comforted. They will inherit the earth. They will be satisfied. They're all present tense. They will. But the first and the last one say theirs is. They're present tense. They're right now. For, the, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Today, right now, not some distant day far ahead when we don't know, but immediately. And you see the hopeful anticipation of the kingdom of Jesus becomes this joyful and lived experience of the persecuted. His kingdom is breaking in, and because Jesus' kingdom is breaking into our lives, we begin to experience the kinds of things Jesus experienced. We're beginning to experience that same clash of kingdoms that he experienced as he brought his. And that is why Tomas Bencomo experienced what he did outside of that town that day. Two kingdoms were clashing, and he was caught in the middle. And I think his knowledge of this promise from Jesus enabled him to share the gospel that day because as the story goes... They told him they were going to kill him. And somehow he had, I don't know how he did this, because I, I would not think like this, but he said, okay, well, if that's what's going to happen, could you give me five minutes? 
to share with you why I'm here and what I'm doing. And in those five minutes, he proceeded to tell them about the gospel and who God is and what he's led him to do, how God reconciles people to himself. And remarkably, <laughs> this is a work of God. They asked Tomas to pray for them. Their response to the light, to the kingdom coming, somehow they said, would you pray for us to Tomas? The one they wanted to kill, they asked for him to pray for them. The people who were persecuting him, he got to pray for right in front of them. And when he finished praying for them, they told him he had free reign in that town. The persecutors became the ones he ministered to, and that is not always the response of people. We don't know what the response will be. Our job is not to control the outcome. Our job is to follow Jesus where he leads us. And there will be people who persecute, and then they become the ones who actually get welcomed into the kingdom, and they become a brother and a sister with you. And there will be other times where they don't. We don't have control over that part. But we do get to choose if we will follow him to that place or not. And you know what? The beautiful part for those of you who have felt like, man, <laughs> that's not me. I'm not Tomas. I can't do that. I've gotten it wrong. I struggle to identify with him and make it known. I struggle to live this out very well. Is that you and I get invited to acknowledge where we get it wrong to let that light shine into that place and have 